and welcome to the Pack Heavy podcast. Now this podcast is for anyone who works in the hospitality and food manufacturing industries who use flexible packaging to get their products to market. Featuring interviews with guests who have traveled the path that you're on so that you can learn from their successes and failures and engage in the mindset required to go all in on your vision. I call this mindset the Pack Heavy mentality and it's primarily driven by deliberate action and extreme organization. You gather market intelligence, put a strong plan in place, organize the appropriate resources, and then confidently test your hypothesis against reality. So if you're ready to pack heavy on your vision, you're in the right place, and I'm excited to have you here. Good morning, and welcome to episode 63, where today I have Colin Isaacs along to have a conversation about the current and future end-of-life systems for flexible packaging in North America. Now, I feel incredibly fortunate to have had a conversation with someone of Colin's caliber. Now, just listen to this. This is Colin's working history on LinkedIn. So in 1979 to 81, he was an elected member of the Ontario Provincial Parliament and spokesperson for Municipal Affairs and the Environment. From 82 to 89, he was the director of the Recycling Council of Ontario and executive director for the Pollution Probe Foundation. And then in 89, Colin established his own business, which is the CIAL Group, an independent environmental policy and program consulting firm that he still operates today, of which they have a wealth of experience in the design and implementation of pollution prevention, life cycle management, and sustainable development projects within the private sector. So this episode lays it all out on the table, especially if you're frustrated with the lack of information and greenwash surrounding the recyclability or compostability of flexible packaging when researching online. Now I'm hoping after listening to this discussion, you will have a much clearer understanding of the current and future end of life systems for flexible packaging in North America and what that means for your business. But before we kick off into the conversation though, just a quick mention of our show sponsor, Foodback. So at Foodpack, we specialize in three specific areas. Stock bags, which you could think of as a turnkey solution, custom printed bags and films, which is actually my favorite part of the business and what I do best, and our packaging equipment like Cipramac vacuum chamber machines, PlexPack band sealers, and repack tray sealers and thermoformers. So if you're looking to get into the market for the first time or would like me to assess your existing packaging program and equipment options, I recommend that you get in touch with me directly by emailing me at hayden at foodpack.ca or by calling me on my work cell, which is 604-360-6790. Colin, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for the invitation, Hayden. Yeah, you're welcome, mate. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. Uh, sustainability or whatever that means these days is front of mind with so many people that approach us here at Foodpack. And I have had quite a few conversations on this podcast and other podcasts that I've appeared on around sustainability in the flexible packaging world. And uh, we always like to keep, um, you know, up to date and current on all of the information out there. And, you know, when you jump online, there is so much information out there, but you don't really know what you're reading and, you know, the truth of it all. So I thought what better person to reach out to than you? Well, thank you very much. No worries, mate. You seem to have a, uh, a long history of working in this field. So where did it all start? Well, it really started in about 1979, 1980 when I was a member of the Ontario legislature and the then leader of the NDP, a fellow by the name of Mike Cassidy, asked me to be the critic for the environment and for municipal affairs. Right. That was in the very early days of environment ministries and yep. all that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in Ontario, there was a, there were a lot of environmental problems, mm. a lot going on, particularly in the waste management field. Okay. And uh, so I developed a bit of a reputation, which then I took to Pollution Probe, a well-known 
environmental group here in yep. Ontario, if not across Canada. Yep. I was executive director there for eight years. And when I left there, I decided to set up as an advisor to uh, the business community to help business become more sustainable. Mm -hmm. That was the very early days of, of the sustainability conversation. It was right after the Brundtland Commission, the World Commission on Environment and Development, a UN commission had introduced the world to the concept of sustainability. Right, right. And do you think the definition of what sustainability means has changed over the years or is it still on track with where it was back then? I still use the same definition that the Brundtland Commission produced. Okay. I think it's a very good one, but uh, it's, it's clearly evolved and there's a whole lot of uh, nuance associated with yeah. it now in different industry sectors yeah. uh, and in different parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, today's conversation uh, is going to be very much focused on flexible packaging, which is the world that I live in and the vast majority of the people that listen to this podcast as well, who are small to medium and even large size business owners and operators um, that primarily package up their food-based product in flexible packaging, whether it's a vacuum bag or a stand-up pouch or a box style pouch, like a coffee bag, for example. So I think today's conversation is really relevant because in a lot of cases, these business owners and operators are trying to do the right thing by the environment and make great decisions for their business business and in turn give their um, give their consumers good options as well and there's also a lot of demand by consumers um, for these businesses to do the right thing by the environment too but in a lot of cases what we're finding here at food pack is that people's hands are tied by the uh, the infrastructure that's either currently in place in the municipalities that they live in or what the actual reality is on an end of life system um, for that particular structure so with you having such a a wealth of knowledge in this space, um, where should we start? Where do you think the conversation needs to start? Well, I'm, I'm a big proponent of something called life cycle assessment. Right. It used to be called life cycle analysis, which is a tool that enables one to compare two different types of packaging or uh, two different ways of doing things. Yeah. And uh, I think it, it's, it's really important to take that into account to make sure that we make the right decisions to make mm -hmm. the right choices yeah i remember back in the mid 1990s uh you're too young to remember that i think but uh there was a uh a process called the national packaging protocol right. it was an industry initiated effort but it was strongly supported by the federal government and it had as its objective to reduce packaging waste by 50%. Mm -hmm. uh, I think if I remember rightly, it was over a five year period that that 50% target was to be achieved. Okay. And they achieved the target. Not only did they reduce household packaging waste by 50%, they reduced, uh, they, uh, reduced it a year earlier than the target date that had been set. But there was a problem. They moved from uh, heavyweight recyclable packaging yep. to lightweight non-recyclable packaging, at least non-recyclable at the time, mm -hmm. uh, such as film pouches, yep. which made the amount of waste look a lot less, but uh, meant that instead of being able to recycle end-of-life packaging, we no longer could recycle it. Yeah. And that was, in a sense, the predecessor of the challenges that we have today. Mm -hmm. We're now saying, Plastic packaging may not be the best, although we'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah. But uh, 
plastic itself is an environmental problem. There's no denying that. Mm. And how are we going to deal with it? Yeah. Well, if we hadn't had that national packaging protocol, we wouldn't have had such a big problem to deal with, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, it, so it's it's really important that we take into account the full scientific life cycle yeah. of the materials that we're looking at in order to ensure that we're making better choices and that we're making choices that are truly sustainable. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of data out there on the benefits of flexible packaging. So for example, somebody that's, you know, got an iced tea or a, you know, a beverage, um, you know, putting it in a glass or a plastic bottle versus a stand up flexible pouch with a spout, you know, in that the, the shipping, uh, the cost of shipping and the space that it takes up in warehouses and the overall weight of the product is a lot less in a flexible pouch than a, than a bottle. That's exactly, that's what you're talking about, isn't it? Like an analysis. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And there, there are exactly that. And there are, uh, even life cycle studies that show that uh, flexible pouches are better for the environment than yeah. uh, glass bottles or, or whatever, yeah. uh, because they are so much lighter for transportation yeah. and produce so, use so much less material, yeah. uh, produce so much less waste. Yeah. But yeah. the problem we're faced with today yeah. is that if, if end-of-life plastic packaging, whether pouches or other kinds of package, mm. find their way into the environment, uh, they will inevitably end up in ocean, rivers, lakes, oceans, yeah. uh, where the action of the waves and water grind them into fine particles, yeah. microplastics, yeah. and microplastics are a serious problem. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, we, we move from one kind of serious problem to another. Mm. So there seem to be quite a few bottlenecks out there from what I can uh, observe, uh, one of which is that, you know, in a localized, you know, space, if we're talking, you know, municipalities, that the infrastructure to either collect and process these flexible pouches isn't in place. You go to the Recycle BC website, for example, and they do have a program where you can either uh, drop off a flexible pouch to a, a London Drugs location, for example, or a Recycle BC depot, and they'll collect it, shred it, pelletize it, and then turn it into engineered fuel. And they're very transparent with this process, but I don't think a lot of consumers know that that's the end-of-life system that's in place. And from what I can understand and the research that I've done, this is a system that's in place quite, quite readily across Canada. Um, you know, for a lot of people, the, the term recycling, you know, they think that, you know, you put a, something in the, um, in the blue recycling bin, the curbside recycling at, at home, and it's going to end up being turned into a plastic bottle or a park bench or outdoor playground or something along those lines, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Am I on, am I on track with my thought process and the research that I've done here? Yep. You're very much on track. Okay. Uh, but I wouldn't blame the municipalities or yep. even blame Recycle BC. Yeah. The, 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 the underlying problem is that uh, there is very little value in a plastic pouch. Mm. So the, the, the cost of collecting it and recycling it into new materials, yep. new packaging or other products, uh, greatly exceeds the value, in, say, in comparison with using fresh plastic for making mm. that same product. Right. Um, it's it's a significant imbalance mm. in the in the value of materials and the fact that environmental costs are not taken into account yeah. in the pricing of things that are brought to market. Yeah. So we got cheap oil and gas. Therefore, we've got cheap plastics. Therefore, the cost of recycling 
uh, end-of-life plastic packaging exceeds the cost of making a new pouch out of oil or gas. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So how but do we? We're, how do we... we're making progress. We're making some progress in that direction. Yes. Little by little. So tell me all about it. Like, where is the the funding come from? How does something like this get instated? And how do we turn you know flip this on its head so that there is that either is value in the process of recycling and collecting, for example, or taking something out of what we could you know regularly be seen out of the regular waste stream or out of the um you know into a stream that could be considered recyclable. Uh, how, where does this all start? Well, it, it's got to start with the economics, in my opinion. Yeah. Because if you don't get the economics right, whatever you do, it's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, government can pass whatever regulations it wants, mm -hmm. but we won't see recycling of plastics exceeding the present 9 or 10%, which is a very, very low figure, yeah. uh, unless it is economically viable to recycle plastics. And the, the way that our governments seem to be choosing to do that, as are the Europeans, as are a number of other countries around the world, including quite surprisingly the United States, is to bring in some form of producer responsibility. In other words, the person that sells you the product in the plastic pouch or yeah. whatever other plastic package uh, they're using has the responsibility of making sure that the plastic is collected and recycled into new pouches or at least into new plastic products. Okay. okay. And if if that that means uh, that the there will either be taxes on virgin plastic material, which nobody seems to like because of that horrible world road, word plastic. Uh, yep. Sorry, taxes. Yeah. Or uh, there will be legal requirements that those who put the plastic pouches into the market uh, have responsibility for ensuring that they are collected and recycled. Mm -hmm. And the best way to do that is to use that collected plastic material in the new packaging rather than throwing that away and using virgin plastic for the new packaging. Right. So you're talking about um, post-consumer recycled materials. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and here in Ontario, for example, uh, the government is setting some very high targets yeah. for the post-consumer recycled content of new plastic packaging. Right. Even our federal government is currently proposing to bring in a 50% requirement uh, by 2030 for the post-consumer recycled content of all plastic packaging. Okay. There's a couple of issues that I see, and you tell me whether I see whether there are issues or not. But with flexible packaging, there are so many different materials and structures out there, right? Whether it's a metallized barrier or a nylon barrier, and then you've got all of your different finishes and and you know features like zippers and um, like valves and stuff on a coffee bag. What does it look like to actually like? Is it realistic to expect you know all of these flexible bags to be sorted out in the facility? depending on the material structures and then them going off into a different stream than, you know, a monostructure, for example, or is this all going to be combined? Like, how do you foresee it working? A little, little more complex than that. Hayden. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, not all plastics are recyclable. Yeah. Uh, or at least recyclable in a conventional way. Yes. In other words, they, when you heat them, they do not melt. Yeah. If the plastic doesn't melt, you can't take it, 
process it into mm -hmm. pallets and reform it into a new package. It, yeah. it just won't work. Yeah. Uh, most of the plastics that will melt can be recycled. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they can be upcycled, that is made into even better products than they were when they were packaging material. Yeah. Uh, some can be recycled back into the same kind of packaging material that they were. Some of them can be recycled, but it's called downcycling. Uh, for example, making park benches out of coffee bags. Yeah. A lot of people see the park bench as a less valuable product because it could be made out of wood, for example, yeah. uh, than the coffee bag. So that's downcycling. Right. Um, but most plastics that will melt, and you can usually tell just by the feel of them, if they're really crunchy, they usually won't melt. If they're soft, flexible, a little uh, more rubbery feeling, then they will melt. That's not a rule. That's a rule of thumb, right. not universally the case. But in general, you can tell whether a plastic will melt or not by by that touch. And uh, if if it is a, a a plastic that will melt, known as thermoplastic it almost certainly can be recycled into one of those three layers, mm. up, equal, or down. Okay. If it's one that won't melt, got to find another uh, pathway. Yeah, yeah. Now, having said all of that, there are other methods of recycling. Uh, one that's rather popular in the research and start industrial startup community at the moment is thermal recycling of the plastic, uh, which actually breaks the material down into its original components or something similar to its original components, uh, and then rebuilds the plastic molecules back into something that's equivalent to virgin plastic. Wow. Uh, it, it looks promising. Uh, it, it's not operating at a large industrial scale at the moment. But there's a lot of startup uh, uh, companies that are putting their research dollars into that technique. Yeah. And uh, it may well prove to be very viable. Okay. Uh, secondly, uh, there's uh, energy recovery, which those in that industry will argue is a form of recycling. Uh, I mean, it amounts to burning the plastic and using the energy generated for electricity yep. or some other heat requiring process. Uh, most governments don't yet regard, at least in Canada, don't yet regard that as a form of recycling mm. and won't allow it to be counted as recycling. Mm. But I mention it because it is at least a better pathway to take than having the plastic escape into the environment. Yeah. Yeah. So that um, process is what we've got in play here in BC. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Having, having said all of that, uh, the, there's still a problem with collection. If you mm. don't collect the stuff or if people put the plastic into their garbage bin uh, and it blows away or gets to the landfill, is dumped by the garbage truck and then blows away, mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're, it's never going to end up in a recycling program. Yeah. So we've got to deal with the uh, social aspects as well. That is teaching people that it is absolutely a priority to make sure that plastic goes into recycling containers 
that they have a cover on them so the plastic doesn't blow away in a strong mm. wind. Mm-hmm. wind yeah. uh, and that, that none of it goes to landfill. Uh, essentially, all of it goes to uh, a proper recycling plant. And we only have very few recycling plants in Canada at the moment. Mm. So it's going to mean a massive industrial investment mm. to build the plants that can take the used plastic and turn it back into new plastic, especially of high enough grade that it will qualify for food packaging. Right. So this brings up a couple of topics. There seems to be two schools of thought out there, and it depends on who you talk to. And uh, one guest that I had on the show was Kelly Williams um, from NatureFlex. And it was actually 12 months tomorrow on the night that I had him on the show. So it's very timely that we're we're catching up today and sort of right. getting current again. Uh, NatureFlex is a company that produces a wood pulp fiber um, cellophane material um, right. that is considered industrial and backyard compostable. And they use it as both a principal substrate and also a barrier um, for structures that build pouches like a coffee bag, for example. And it was a really good conversation because, you know, uh, we were talking about why it wasn't considered or why it wasn't certified home compostable here in North America. And it is in, um, in Australasia and Europe, for example. And a lot of it is, you know, legalities and, and language around it and the parameters that, um, that are specified that um, tell a consumer how long it will take for it to break down in the soil at home. Um, and an industrial facility over here, it's our understanding that they're not accepting um, flexible packaging or compostable flexible packaging industrial facilities here in BC, at least to my knowledge, um, because they, it's very hard to identify uh, what's considered compostable and what's a, you know, a standard structure. So there seem to be some bottlenecks and um, so on here, but the language that NatureFlex are using with a lot of their clientele is that it's earth digestible. So if it doesn't end up in somebody's backyard compost or if it doesn't end up in an industrial facility and it does blow away and end up in a stream or on the side of the road, that it will digest back into the earth. So that's sort of like the language that they're using. Um, We've spoken a little bit about recycling. What's your level of knowledge on the issues that we're confronted with when it comes to compostable flexible packaging and the infrastructure here? I'm heavily involved in compostable packaging issues right now. Okay. Uh, there's a, a lot of interest in compostable plastics. Yep. There's a lot of interest in expanding compostable composting programs yep. to be able to handle them. Yep. And uh, the discussions go on between the federal and provincial governments and the manufacturers of these things on a very regular basis, mm. uh, both through the certifiers Mm. that are the companies that that put a verification mark on the plastic like to say BPI this, for example yeah BPI yeah uh, there's another one called BNQ which is a a Quebec based organization that does a similar kind of verification right uh, and there's a European one uh, there's an Australian one hmm. uh, a lot of companies a lot of organizations are getting into certification hmm. just before I go down that road, uh, it's interesting that you talk about NatureFlex uh, having a cellulose material. Yeah. Because cellulose is one of those things that illustrates the uh, very narrow difference between a fiber product such as paper or cardboard or, or boxboard mm-hmm. and a plastic product such as 
cellulose or uh, PLA mm -hmm. or any one of the many other compostable plastics yeah, that are PBS. currently on the market. Yeah, yeah. Yep. There's there's a lot of them out there already, and a lot are coming. Most people haven't heard of them yet. They've heard mm. of polyethylene and yep. polypropylene. Uh, yep. There's a whole slew of uh, compostable plastics uh, in a similar range. Yes. But the reason I highlight the difference is that cellulose fits on that line that divides the, the fiber product from the uh, plastic product and illustrates, to me at least, that there's very little difference between a compostable plastic and a wood fiber based product. Mm. Uh, compostable plastics are mostly made of biomass, mm. that is plant material. Uh, they're very similar in many ways to paper. Uh, paper is made of cellulose, which is a naturally occurring plastic, uh, even though it's in a fiber form rather than in a sheet form, uh, chemically, it, it it is very, very similar to the kind of polymers that make up a, uh, a plastic material. So we get ourselves all tied up in knots and definitions and what is a plastic and what is wood fiber and are they different? Yeah. And there, there's cellulose saying, I'm the same as wood fiber, chemically identical, but I happen to be wood fiber in a sheet form rather mm. than in a fiber form. Got you. So yeah, that's, 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 part, that's part of the big debate that goes on. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think that there's a, a big future for compostable bio-based plastics, mm -hmm. uh, but not enough of a future to replace all of the conventional plastics that are presently in the marketplace. Right. So the, the major certifiers like BPI, the Biodegradable Products Institute, which yeah. is a North American organization, have put a limitation on the uh, compostable plastics that they will certify. Mm. They will only certify for use in food-based applications. That is pouches that contain food, uh, bags that are used for disposal of compostable food waste, yeah. potato chip bags, coffee bags, uh, all of those kinds of things, uh, where washing the plastic to remove the residual food waste, such as a, a meat tray or yeah. something like that, yeah. would be uneconomic and bad for the environment because of the amount of energy and water needed to wash the plastic. Oh, yeah. Which brings us back to that life cycle mm. uh, approach that I was mentioning a few minutes ago. Mm. So if, if uh, a, a brand owner wants to use a compostable plastic for food packaging, absolutely take a look at it, find something that has the properties that you need and think about moving ahead. Mm -hmm. If you want to use it for uh, making Lego bricks or, or something like that, think twice because Lego bricks are eminently recyclable. Yeah. And, and if a, something can be recycled without huge environmental or economic cost, then it should be recycled. Mm. If the cost of recycling is too high environmentally or economically, then it's valid to look at it as, as a, a potential compostable application. Mm -hmm. Now, having explained that, let me move on to, can you get it composted in Canada? Um, first of all, 
industrial composting, which is what is used by municipalities for home green bin or other or yes. compost bag collection, yeah. is is a somewhat different process from home composting. Mm -hmm. If we have time, I can go into that. But yeah, it's, sure. It's it's sort of boring in a way, <laughs> but I'll, uh, I'll I'll come back to it. Yeah. But if if uh, you want it collected. Uh, in green bin or green bag program, excuse me, it should be uh, certified home compostable. And that that certification exists only in Europe and Australia. Yeah. There is no certification for home composting in North America yet. Yeah. Uh, there will be eventually, I'm sure. But at the moment, uh, if it if it won't certify as industrially compostable, then you're out of luck. And even if it's certified in for industrial composting, many composters won't accept it. Mm. And there are a few reasons for that, some of which I see as as interesting, some less so. Yeah. One of the interesting ones is that the composters are concerned that uh, if they start accepting uh, certified compostable packaging in the collection system, then people will not notice the difference between a certified compostable package mm -hmm. and what I call a conventional plastic yeah. uh, package, the ones that are not compostable at all. And they will get a lot of contamination in the collection system from conventional plastic and uh, that will go through the composting process, end up in the compost and pollute the environment because you'll have small shreds of conventional yeah. plastic being spread on gardens and farm fields and everywhere yeah. that compost is used. They don't want that, rightly so. So they don't want to accept any plastic until systems to separate compostable plastics and conventional plastics have been developed. Mm -hmm. The good news is that those processes already exist. It is possible for machinery to pick the uh, non-compostable plastics, the conventional plastics, out of the compost stream or out of the input organic stream, the, the food waste stream, mm -hmm. and, and make sure that no conventional plastics go into the composting process. Mm -hmm. That's an expensive way to do it, unfortunately. It would be far better to teach consumers not to put conventional plastic into their green bin. Yeah. But I'll return to that in a moment. But yeah. it, the machinery does exist. And if we could find a way to pay for the machinery, uh, then that would get us around that problem. Okay. And I'm pretty excited by some of the machinery I've seen from European sources that's able to, to clean up the compost, even if households put the wrong things into their compost bin. Okay. Now, is there a cheaper way to do it? Uh, by training uh, consumers and householders only to put the correct compostable plastics into the green bin? Yes, it can be done through labeling, but it's got to be done through a much better labeling system mm. than we presently have. Yeah. In Seattle, as an example, they now have a system that compostable bags have to be brown or green. Mm. 
-hmm. or have to have a very uh, obvious green or brown logo yeah. uh, so that the consumer can say, ha-ha, this is a compostable one. Mm -hmm. um, that's one approach. Uh, there are other labeling systems that could be used as an approach. Uh, we have done some tests, that is my organization, my company, has done some tests with consumers and have found that with appropriate education programs, it actually doesn't take too much effort to uh, train consumers, to help consumers understand that only compostable plastics go into the green bin. Yeah. And uh, if you do that, you actually find that they stop putting the conventional plastics in the green bin mm. and the, the composter ends up with a much cleaner organic stream than they would if they were not accepting compostable plastics. Right. So, so training systems do work and they make life easier for the composters as well as for the industry that is using compostable plastics. Okay, yeah. But we've got a lot of training yet to do in Canada mm. to, to make that as smooth as it should be. So are you Maybe suggesting, other, yeah, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, my question. So at the moment, um, you know, a lot of our clientele are using the number seven recyclable logo, which seems to be a bit of a catch all. So that sort of encapsulates anything that can't go into the regular recycling stream. Uh, yeah. You know, it could be a laminated pouch, it could be a compostable, a biodegradable, it could be anything really. Um, am I on track there? So what they would require is just a, a new identifier, like a new recyclable symbol that would be unique yeah. to compostable. Now, those those so-called recycling symbols, the yep. one to seven logos, yep. were never intended to be recycling symbols. Okay. They, they were developed by the plastics industry in the United States to identify the resin that the plastic pouch or plastic whatever yep. is made of. Yeah. And, and as you said, they go from one to six in uh, defined resin categories, mm -hmm. polyethylene, polypropylene, yeah. polyvinyl chloride, etc., yeah. polystyrene. Yeah. And then there's a number seven, which is for all of the rest. Yeah. That system, in my view, is horribly out of date. Yeah. It's not useful because no machine can read those logos anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And most people either don't bother or can't see them because they're too small. And I would like to get rid of that system of logos totally mm. in order to move to, to a better system of identifying recyclable, compostable, uh, and non-recyclable, non-compostable plastics. Uh, what do you propose? Yeah. The American industry loves yeah. their little logo. Yeah. So we're, we're rather stuck with it. Yeah. And the SPC, uh, which we're um, subscribed to here and, you know, we keep yeah. up to date with everything that's going on in the industry. Uh, they, from what I understand, help create the How to Recycle program down in the States, which is sort of an extension on the um, the identifier logo that the recyclable um, symbols have in that it'll actually tell you, you know, how to recycle that specific bag. We don't seem to have every, anything like that here in Canada. But what do you propose would be a, you know, a more um, a beneficial program than what we currently have? We, well, frankly i would say that program yeah uh i mean we can use it in canada mm -hmm. uh i know of at least one company that is using it okay uh but uh it, it it's certainly not widespread and it's no. certainly not well known and it won't get well known and still until brand owners start putting it on their package mm -hmm. 
the many Canadian brand owners argue that because of our requirements for bilingual packaging, yep. there is not room on the package for the how to recycle logo. Yeah, I think we got to find a way around that one. Yeah, and there are ways to do that uh, through in-store uh, what are known as shelf ticklers, the little mm -hmm. signs that the yep. grocers put alongside the product that they're uh, they're selling. Uh, it can be done for use by use of QR codes and you flash your phone at the QR code and it shows you the how to recycle logo. Yep. Yep. Uh, lots of ways of, of, of dealing with that, mm. but it's going to take a, a little more innovation and a little more enthusiasm. And again, I think that the extended producer responsibility programs will help do that because then the brand owners are going to be responsible for ensuring that their package is recycled yeah. at the end of its life. Yeah. And hopefully they will say, we've got to educate the consumer in a better way as to what our package is made of. Yeah, that's so perfect. We, we're getting there. Yeah, that's really, um, it's funny you say that because at the moment there's a huge trend towards going um, with cleaner packaging design, you know, really keeping it simple, yeah. keeping everything legible so it's identifiable from a distance, you know, with the consumers on the retail shelf. And yeah, obviously in Canada, here we have a requirement to have bilingual, um, of, you know, uh, packaging as well, which it does take up a significant amount of space, as you suggested. Um, you know, it also is hinged on the type of package that a lot of people choose because a regular stand-up pouch only has the two panels, the back and the front. But if people right. are looking at, you know, valuable real estate, they could always look at a box style pouch, which has got the additional panels on the side, which, you know, they can use to tell their brand story or how to recycle program. So yeah, I agree. I think a lot of it can be, um, you know, can be looked at through that lens. Yeah. Now, before we move away from compostable packaging, there's yep. a, there's another issue, which is of concern to the composters, which I think we need to sort out. And that is they claim that even certified compostable packaging will not always break down in their composting facility. Mm. And sometimes they're right. There are some forms of compostable plastic, and I mentioned there's quite a wide range of compostable yeah. plastics these days. Yep. Some break down really quickly, no mm. problem at all. Mm -hmm. Others do take a little bit longer. And the composter wants to get the, co the food waste and yard waste through their plant as quickly as possible. Yeah. So they don't want to take a bit longer in order to make sure that the compostable packaging breaks down. Mm -hmm. Now, compostable plastic is, is a relatively new product. It's getting better all the time as new materials come out and as older, older compostable plastic materials are improved. So we're going to get around that sooner or later. But it's a chicken and egg problem mm. because if the uh, composters won't accept compostable packaging, then why is a brand owner going to use it? Yeah. yeah. If, so we, we, we really have to find a way of uh, overcoming that barrier mm. and encouraging enough composters to accept compostable packaging that in the short term, at least, there is a, uh, some municipalities, there is a pathway for the compostable packaging to, to, break, to be taken to an industrial facility where it breaks down, disappears, returns to carbon dioxide water, yeah and yeah. humus which is yeah. the the raw materials that it were was originally made of 
the federal government and Ontario governments are doing some work on that. They've uh, got a, a big study going on, uh, spending two hundred and fifty thousand bucks. So I'm told, yeah, to to try and find a solution to this problem. Uh, some composters are beginning to recognize that compostable plastics are going to be part of the future, mm. and they're beginning to say we'll accept them in our green bin, green bag programs. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot of education still to be done. Yeah. And uh, it's it's going to be a frustration for both brand owners and householders until uh, we get some of those barriers settled. Yeah, I agree. It, it also comes down in my book to who runs the show. Should it be that composters decide what packaging is allowed on the market mm -hmm. because they want to get the food waste and yard waste through the plant very quickly? Or should it be that composters are, are told by, by their clients who are generally municipalities mm -hmm. that uh, we want to see compostable packaging on the market because it is better for the environment than mm. a lot of non-compostable, non-recyclable packaging mm. like uh, potato chip bags and mm. candy wrappers and, yep. and things like that, drinking straws. Yep. Uh, should we uh, force the composting industry to take those materials mm. and pay them a bit extra in order to run their systems a little bit more slowly mm. so that those uh, compostable materials do break down in the composting plant. Mm. It's not for me to to say which which is the right way to go, mm. but you can understand that I'm generally on the side of the people who want to use compostable plastics yeah. for food packaging. Yeah, understood. They make a lot of environmental sense. Yeah, no, it really does. I feel like um, you know, a lot of businesses and you know, even us at Food Pack, we've got our hands tied right now. You know, we've got all of these structures and the capability to put a product out into the world, but until the end of life system's in place, it's kind of a useless exercise. And there is a cost involved as well. And you know, usually high MOQs around this packaging too. So for a company to make an informed decision on, you know, they do a cost benefit analysis on a, a regular standard structure versus a compostable. It suits their product because it may be a dry good, like a coffee, for example, like coffee beans. And then they're like, okay, our consumers want this. We want this, but there's nowhere to put it. You know, it's like, it's really hard to make that, um, you know, that economical decision because you are paying more for the product. It, it must be really hard, especially when we don't necessarily have a timeline in place because, you know, some people are like, well, how far away is it until they're going to be accepting these structures? We're like, we don't know. So right. is there a, a timeline in place at the moment that you can see? No, there's no timeline, mm. but uh, I think there will be a timeline within, let me be realistic yeah. and say 18 months. Okay. I, wow. I think we're, we're getting closer. Yeah. Decisions are being made by governments. Right. But more importantly, there's some other things we can do that will help. Mm. For example, the food service industry, the quick serve restaurants, uh, and in particular sports facilities like arenas and, yep. and uh, uh, games uh, facilities mm. uh, go through a huge amount of single use packaging, yeah. uh, cutlery, plates, cups, all of those kinds of things, hot mm -hmm. cups, cold cups. Yep. And at the end of a, of a concert or the end of a football game, there's a huge amount of what generically is called packaging waste. It's, yeah. it's all that food service wear uh, that 
mostly ends up going to uh, the landfill because mm -hmm. it's not easily recycled. Mm -hmm. If we can persuade uh, that sector of the economy to start using compostable food service ware, they have the volumes that will make it realistic and cost effective for composters to start taking that compostable food service ware. Yeah, that's awesome. If, if we can use that as a driver, yeah, and and uh, it's happening in the United States where yeah. there's a green sports alliance, right? Uh, if we can get that kind of thing happening in Canada, uh, and and get some of these big facilities to start using compostable food service ware, and there will then be a volume that the composters will be prepared to accept, mm -hmm. and that'll provide a pathway through which the home-based compostable packaging can yep. also be uh, be driven. Yeah, that's great to hear. I know that the Vancouver Aquarium over here, they've got a closed loop system where they, uh, you know, they really have control over what goes into their bins within the uh, within the aquarium. And I know they've got an agreement with a uh, facility up by Whistler, which is a, um, a privately owned um, composting facility that accepts these products. And there are also um, some of our clients up at Whistler that know that they can access this and it's a, a viable um, end of life system for a compostable pouch as well. So yeah, right. I, I know it's there and I know it's being done. It's just, you know, on a wider, broader scale, uh, you know, when is this going to be implemented? But to hear that it's about 18 months away in some cases, that's really exciting. Yep. And for the folks, your listeners in the East, uh, the National Arts Centre in Ottawa is doing exactly the same thing as the Vancouver Aquarium. They've made right. all their food service ware compostable. They've got a uh, composter in the Kingston area that is prepared to take that material mm -hmm. and is taking it very successfully. And that provides an opportunity for uh, use of uh, or collection of compostable packaging yeah. to, to spread out and go through that same facility. That's great. Um, so retail banners uh, right across Canada are in down in the States. They've got, you know, dates projected into the future where they're going to require their vendors to either have compostable flexible packaging or uh, recyclable flexible packaging. So I'm talking about monostructures in a lot of cases. So right. number two or number four recyclable. And they seem to have these mandates in place. Um, and we have, you know, we've been listening closely to our clients who are, you know, very much in touch with these banners. And in some cases, they're requiring um, fully compostable. And in other cases, it's recyclable. But as you and I both know, in some cases, a compostable pouch just isn't a reality. Like if it's a liquid-based product or something along those lines, it's not necessarily the right product to be put in a compostable pouch. So is do you think that they some of these retail banners may be out of touch with what the reality of packaging and packaging up food products may be? Or are they just sort of trying to throw a blanket solution over, over these um, over these issues? No, I, I, I think the, uh, the retailers, the banners are now beginning to take it very seriously. Good. Yeah. Uh, I, I would have to say, I don't think they have done in the past. Mm. They've seen it as sort of a fringe activity that they'll put some time and effort into when they've got nothing better to do. And, and they've always got something better to do. But I think now the level of public concern particularly about plastics in the oceans and in mm. rivers and lakes mm -hmm. has reached such a high level that they are all taking it seriously and are all looking for pathways mm. to, to resolve the problems. Mm -hmm. uh, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which was founded in, in Britain and now has branches throughout the world, including in Canada yep. and the US, 
has been one of the leaders in showing in the retail and packaging industry how to deal with these kinds of things. Yeah, the secular economy. A, yeah, that's right. There's a, a a big team in Canada developing something called the Canada Plastics Pact, and 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 that Plastics Pact is is being driven by retail banners, as well as by brand owners, the packaging industry, manufacturers, uh, and even some composters. Mm. And uh, there's, there's a, a, a real sense of, of activity around finding ways and finding solutions to these issues. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not just a matter of, of tweaking waste management systems. It's a matter of a major change yeah. in waste management systems. We need uh, a massive new industry sector for plastics recycling, mm. because at the moment, plastics recycling in Canada is at a very small scale, mm. nothing like enough to uh, to deal with the huge volumes of plastic packaging mm. that are in the marketplace. Mm. We need more composting facilities because all of the composters that are currently handling uh, household and commercial waste for composting are full up and, and bursting at the seams. Uh, we need new technologies to better handle these things. In many cases, the technologies either exist or are close to existing from European sources. But wouldn't it be nice to see Canada developing some better recycling technologies and better composting technologies? And and being able to use them and demonstrate them not just in Canada, but around the world. So it's a, a new industrial sector for Canada to be selling machinery mm. and equipment and systems, as well as to be buying from others. I mean, it, it, it frustrates me enormously that uh, the wind turbine industry, which is very busy in Canada, putting up wind farms for renewable energy, is dominated by European manufacturers. Uh, we did try to get started with wind turbine manufacturing in Canada, but it really didn't take off and there's mm. not much of that industry left. Hmm. Let's not make that same mistake with sustainable packaging, with sustainable waste management. Yeah. Let's develop the, t the systems ourselves and, and position ourselves as a world leader. Mm. And the federal government has indicated that it understands that and wants to do that. But uh, we're waiting for the new environment minister, who also has a, a great understanding of these things because it comes from Greenpeace, right. uh, to, uh, to actually start implementing some of these programs that are good for the environment, good for the economy, mm -hmm. and are, as you said, what people are now beginning to call a circular economy. Yeah. It's interesting. Like um, when I'm having conversations with our clients, a lot of the... A lot, you know, a lot of this conversation that we're having could be seen as doom or gloom or, you know, negative in that at the moment there aren't any solutions. But there does seem to be a lot at the tunnel, which you've highlighted today, which is really exciting. And, you know, things the way it is right now isn't going to be the way that it is forever. But there's a lot of work that needs to be done between now and then. In between now and then, there seems to be offsetting programs available for companies to, um, to engage in, like Repurpose Global. Are you familiar with the work that Repurpose does? 
Yes, I am. Yeah, they seem amazing in that you can either um, certify your business as plastic neutral or plastic uh, negative, uh, which is right. awesome. And they um, they assess the volume of plastic that you have either put into the world or project to put into the world, and they will remove either an equal amount or a um, a, a a net positive amount, I guess, would be the terminology, um, so that there's a, a negative plastic, um, well, there's more t plastic taken out of the world. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, yeah, we've got some clients that are engaged with repurpose, and I see nothing but benefits there. Are there other programs out there like that that you've heard of? Well, the 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 Loop program is a little bit like that. I mm -hmm. mean, Loop is actually using reusables mm. rather than any kind of recyclable or compostable. Right. Uh, I don't know whether it's available in British Columbia, mm -hmm. but in Ontario, Loop and Loblaw have entered into a pilot project whereby there's about 90 products that you can order online uh, that will be delivered either for collection at Loblaw or I think they deliver to home as well mm -hmm. uh, that are in reusable packaging and that uh, uh, you use Hagen Day's ice cream or somebody's ketchup. Yeah. And uh, you, once the package is empty, you return it to them. They clean it, uh, sterilize it, and it's used again for another trip around the loop. Right. I think uh, there are some smaller companies as well that are doing that kind of thing. Mm. I think that's a very good initiative. Uh, I'm not aware of any others that are actually uh, the same as uh, as using an offset program at the moment, but I know they will come. Uh, we need some enthusiasm to be developed between some of those kinds of programs. Uh, some of the environmental groups, and I don't want to criticize them yeah. because they do a great job, but they are critical of some of those programs because the programs aren't perfect. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to stop allowing the perfect to become the enemy of the good. Yeah. Moving in the right direction, taking some steps forward is far better than wringing your hands saying there's nothing we can do mm -hmm. and just carrying on regardless. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, that if we can get some nonprofit organizations up and running that will say, let's work on the technologies, let's work on finding better solutions mm -hmm. that that it will go a long way to encouraging uh governments and industry uh, both to mandate oh that's a bad word this week mandate. but to to require <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> to, to require the uh the 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 better solutions to be implemented yeah. and to recognize that this is not a one-step process but this is a journey and yeah. it's going to be quite a few years on the journey making yeah. continuous improvement as we go yeah i'm really looking forward to seeing where we're at when my kids are older you know like in, in a generation's time you know give them the opportunity to well have us give them an opportunity to inherit a world that's in a better position than what we're in right now. I'm looking forward to seeing what that looks like for them and and how food products are packaged up and you know what systems are in place to to um and what viable you know solutions are in place at that time as well. It'll be really nice to see. Well, I, I yeah. agree. I think yeah. a lot of a lot of people in in the business world feel exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I mean one of the reasons that I'm no longer working with an NGO but work as an advisor to business is that back in the 1980s, not everybody in the NGO world 
believed in in business playing a role in solving the problems. Mm. Uh, I remember that Dave Bozzelli, who was the CEO of Dow Chemical Canada in those days, mm-hmm. uh, had a saying. He said, business caused these environmental problems. Now business has to help solve them. Yeah. And I, I saw the wisdom of that and took it to heart and, and have been involved in working with business ever since mm-hmm. to, to try and find better ways of ensuring that we have a healthy life, that we uh, don't waste food, that we uh, manage to accommodate uh, the environment in, in, a, in a way that is continuous improvement mm-hmm. rather than continuous degradation. And I believe that the business community has a, a very, very important role to play in yeah. doing that. In order to, to follow on, I would suggest to you and, and food pack and your clients that uh, look for things that you can do. Mm. They may be only small things, but I mentioned uh, talking to the, the sports uh, facility operators and fast food operators, encouraging them to get going with compostable packaging materials, mm-hmm. working with industry associations to help them find recycling opportunities where they do exist. And, and there are a lot of opportunities there. Finding investment opportunities. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure your company knows a lot about plastic resins. Maybe there are folks in your company that would know a bit about how to recycle those resins. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and could either lend their expertise to a startup company that wants to get into recycling, or maybe even your company is interested in getting into recycling. Mm. Doesn't mean full time, yep. but by by helping to move the system forward, mm. there's a lot that all of us can do, not just as, as householders, not just as consumers, but as people who work in business and government to point the way to some of these better approaches Mm. for dealing with waste and eventually uh, eliminating waste materials. Yeah, that's great. Um, I had a a really good conversation with Bruce Wallinger, who's heavily involved in the seaweed industry over here. And we touched on bioplastics being created from seaweed. And that sounds awesome because I mean, the benefit of, you know, harvesting seaweed out in the ocean is that it sequesters carbon. And then there's nothing but benefits from what I can see. Do you think that that's a a long-term viable solution as well? Absolutely. And there are quite a lot of companies around the world, mm. including one or two or three or four in Canada yeah. uh, who are on that pathway. Yeah. Uh, again, when you're using biomaterials, mm. biomass, plant materials, yeah. it's very important not to over-harvest. Because mm. if you over-harvest, uh, give it time and there won't be any of that material left. Mm. So use it for the best possible uses. Uh, make sure you're managing the stocks just as we should be managing fish stocks. Yeah. So seaweed stocks are, are fragile as well. Mm-hmm. But if if seaweed is used in a, uh, a, a sustainable manner, uh, it can do a, a great deal to help us reduce some of the uses of, uh, of plastic that will not get recycled. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm thinking especially of things like candy wrappers yeah. and chewing gum wrappers and yeah. those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, little pieces of plastic are the worst because recycling uh, systems have difficulty handling yeah. such small pieces. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, the, there's also uh, a lot of waste wood fiber 
mm-hmm. from the, the pulp and paper industry that can be used for cellulosic plastics. Yeah, ah, yeah, yep. started talking about. We did, them. yeah. <laughs> Beginning of the show. Yeah, it's that's why it's a, a, a full circle. Yeah, it's, it's all about finding opportunities, agricultural wastes. Mm-hmm. Again, not in uh, in in too great a quantity, because we already have depleted soils on mm-hmm. a lot of farms. So yeah. we actually want to put the agricultural waste back into the soil mm-hmm. and put compost back into the soil. Yeah. But if we use them carefully in, in managed quantity, uh, a lot of agricultural materials can be used for making plastic-like materials. And, and so it goes. Well, bring I on this future. We'll, I'm excited uh, for we'll, it. Yeah. I, I, I think there's huge business opportunities. Yeah. And, and rather than being depressed, it's time to get excited about the new materials that can meet society's needs without uh, causing the environmental harm that yep. some of the old materials uh, we know to be causing. Well, look, that's a great way to finish off the episode. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today, Colin. And look, thank you so much for your time. You've uh, This was the conversation that I was really hoping it would be. So I'm sure it was just as informative for everybody out there listening as it was for me. Um, any closing thoughts? Well, as I as I I really want to hammer home that uh, that that last point that this is a business opportunity, yeah. And every business should be looking at what it's doing and finding a way to reduce its environmental footprint and to increase its bottom line at the same time. Awesome. The early birds will get the worm. Don't wait for the government to tell you what to do. Find the right thing and get on with it. Yeah. because the government solution may or may not be the right solution for business. Awesome. Well, look, thank you very much for your time, Colin. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Hayden. You're welcome. And uh, let's do this again sometime. I was going to say that we should do this in 12 to 18 months when uh, things look as if they are, you know, the switch is being turned on and I'd love to get an update from you. I'm sure the switch will be turned on by then and it would be great to provide an update. That'd be look great. forward to it. Thanks, mate. Take care. Bye. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions from today's episode or would like to know more about what I can do to help you achieve your packaging vision, you can reach me directly at Hayden at thepackheavypodcast.com. You could DM me on Instagram at thepackheavypodcast or we could also connect on LinkedIn and start a conversation there. I'll see you next week.